From LibertyCast Studios and the Defenders of Capitalism Project, here's another capital idea from your host, Mike Williams. Mike Williams here, defender and champion of laissez-faire capitalism. Welcome back to another episode of My Capital Idea. This is Michael Williams with the Defenders of Capitalism Project, and I have a special guest here. We're recording on uh, one of the first Mondays here in October, and I wanted to get your thoughts, Jason. Jason Lettman is our guest today. The main topic today is to discuss this Proposition HH in Colorado. Many of our listeners maybe haven't, haven't even heard of this, but it's basically dealing with uh, property taxes and how our state legislature has decided to maybe go around some of the rules that are already in place with regard to property taxes and income taxes. But I want to get your thoughts first, Jason. You know, this last weekend was just a massive tragedy with the Hamas attack in in uh, Israel. I wondered if you had any thoughts on that or any reaction to that. I mean, I, I think just because it's topical, I thought I'd just ask your, your opinion. Oh, about uh, Israel. So, You know, it's a huge deal. And I think the thing that is really sticking out to me is, you know, the Mossad is the best intelligence agency in the world. And you have even guys from the CIA and, you know, MI5 saying they're the best. And yet it seems to have come as a complete and total shock. And so to me, that's kind of the disturbing part is that even as good as the the best intelligence agency is, that there's still that lurking threat of war, surprise attack, and and issues. And so obviously it raises a lot of geopolitical concerns. Not that I'm a big expert, but we're already dumping tons of money into Ukraine. And now we dump a bunch of money to Israel. And, you know, it seems like the Chinese are going to be saying, well, America's pretty distracted right now. It'd be a good time for us to take over Taiwan. And, you know, how that all plays out is going to be a interesting thing. That's maybe more yeah, than you wanted, but <laughs> no, no, no. I was just curious. I mean, um, I, I, as you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, Yaron Brook. He's one of our uh, instructors with the Defenders of Capitalism Project, and he's got a podcast. I, I mostly agree with what he talks about. He, he obviously, maybe not obviously, but he he uh, you know he was born and raised in Israel and has a background there. He was in the Israeli intelligence in the army there. I would recommend people listen to his stuff and the Ayn Rand Institute about what they're saying, because I think it's a unique perspective. But I thought you might have uh, some thoughts on it. Let's go back mm-hmm. and talk about your, actually your expertise and your okay. credibility as far as the, <laughs> sure. the tax topic. That's the main thing. Um, I do think defenders of capitalism, anyone who's interested in freedom, should be should be animated and uh, and advocating for Israel uh, in this in this perilous, perilous time right now. But I want to make sure we focus on your expertise. So my guest here is a formal introduction, Jason Letman. Jason is president of Consultus Asset Valuation Company here in Denver. He manages all their property tax consultation activities and performs commercial appraisals, investment analysis, market analysis for the firm. He's the big honcho at a consultus, and uh, he has a BA in economics, a master's in real estate and, and construction management. He teaches for Kaplan uh, a number of courses on, on appraisals and real estate valuation. And he basically fights for his clients in the area of mostly, I think, commercial taxes, You know, making sure that the, the counties uh, in which 
his clients operate are being taxed at, quote, maybe a fair price given the market. And you oftentimes are basically advocating for your commercial property owners getting the right assessment done, right? Uh, yeah, that's correct. So uh, most of my clients, as you say, are commercial property owners. And although my expertise is around appraisal, I kind of take off my appraisal hat where I would be unbiased and I put on my consultant hat, my advocacy hat, and I look to see, is there any reason that I can get their valuation lowered, which down the road ends up lowering their uh, their property taxes? Yeah, and I, I have all kinds of questions about how that works. Uh, we maybe can dive into it. I also wanted to mention, you know, in terms of this particular podcast, Jason's most important credibility is he was the Defenders of Capitalism Award winner in 2012, has been a longtime regular contributor to the Defenders of Capitalism Project, and he's been a panelist on our Defender, Defenders of Capitalism finalists for a long time. And he, he is definitely a very articulate defender of freedom and individual rights. And in that context, I thought it would be worthwhile to have you on, Jason to talk, you, you know, to marry that that whole idea of uh, being able to advocate for freedom, but also your actual expertise in looking at property taxes and to whatever degree you've looked at it. Uh, and I don't know really how much you've dived into the weeds on this Proposition HH. I know you're familiar with uh, the Tabor Taxpayer Bill of Rights here in Colorado and all the different attacks on it and what, you know, end runs that the state legislature has done on it. So I thought we maybe would, would start off with that, you know, sort of property taxes or mm -hmm. the tax lay of the land in the Colorado. Uh, area. And, and and for those of our listeners who are not in Colorado, I think this can be instructive as well, because Tabor itself has been, in, in many ways, a model for states around the country to remain fiscally solvent. But why don't you give just give the listeners a little bit of a lay of the land in terms of taxpayer bill of rights in Colorado? Sure. If you don't mind, I'd like to actually take a step back to Gallagher and just briefly cover what Gallagher did. So Gallagher was passed at a time when the same thing that's happening now was happening then, where values on homes had gone up substantially and there was going to be a tax revolt. And I think everyone was a little scared of what was going on in California, where they passed their proposition, which ultimately put a really hard limit on, on property taxes. And so we came up with this idea of Gallagher, which would split the world into two. There would be the commercial property taxes and the residential. And in order to keep residential from ever going out of control, the taxes going out of control faster than people could maybe keep up with paying it, they would adjust the residential assessment ratio downward. And what that ended up doing was over the years, that assessment ratio for residential started at 21%. And by the time we, we got rid of Gallagher, it was down at 7% or just under 7%. So that has really kept a lid on residential property taxes. And then you add on Tabor. And Tabor, of course, was passed in the early 90s, and it limited how much growth each taxing entity could could add on to their taxes each year. And I believe it's population plus inflation. Yeah. And so, of course, as soon as we put a limit on it, government tried to figure out ways around that. And over the course of the years, they've had these things to say, well, it's not a tax, it's a fee. And we're going to ask the voters to de-Bruce, uh, which is D Doug Bruce was the guy who got Tabor passed. It was his kind of brainchild. And so when they say- Have you ever met Doug Bruce? I haven't. I haven't. So I've There's... met him a number of times. I actually think he's a hero. Now, I mean, for those yeah. who are, this is kind of a rabbit hole, but- there's a lot of people who vilify Doug Bruce and he has, you know, sort of a reputation of being a brash kind of guy mm -hmm. and not very, not very uh, meanable, not, you know, people, yeah. lots of people don't like him evidently. Um, 
but he he really pushed for this whole taxpayer bill of rights and i believe that my personal view is that that was really a good thing that you know to, to have some kind of restraint on government spending restraint on how much money they could tax us um so i, I i'm a fan of his but you're right that so that's yeah. where the term debrucing comes from right right and so to add to that if you can you know i know this may shock some of your listeners, but NPR did a four-session, four-episode podcast on him called The Tax Man. And you have to kind of put on your, okay, I'm going to listen to NPR and be a little bit sick because of their their bent on everything. But they did a good job of talking about how many attempts there were to get a taxpayer bill of rights and how it was just sort of at this right moment, the right time, the right wording, and they got it passed. And so it was it was good to listen to, but it was also, you know, you have to adjust for the NPR spin. How long ago was that that one done? Oh, I think it was four or five years ago. Yeah. It's still up. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's a whole other topic. I mean, is NPR a good source? I mean, one of the things that we try to do on this podcast is give our, our listeners uh, maybe not so well-known, but what we consider to be better better sources of news, better <laughs> sources of information. Because, you know, no one can... No one can be an expert on everything. That's what a modern division of labor capitalist economy is all about, yeah. being able to say, okay, I, I can specialize in my own field. And a lot of times people get kind of intimidated by saying, well, I don't understand. Oh, that's why we got a state legislature. That's why we got so-and-so. That's why. And you want to have new sources. Now, NPR for a long time, I think has been, you know, at least stylistically pretty good, you know, level-headed, not having like the, you know, clickbait type of rage things, mm -hmm. but I agree with you. They they have definitely become more and more, I don't know, uh, supportive of leftist uh, socialist type of uh, approach to things. So that, you, like you said, you got to take them with a grain of salt. Yeah. But that was a pr pretty good, uh, pretty good series that they did. Yeah. on. Was it I, actually all? Well, I learned a lot about the history behind ta uh, Tabor and how it got passed, a little bit about his brash personality. And of course, as they're going through, you know, all of us who want there to be a limit on government and want them to ask if they want more money from us, we would take a different tack on how we approach it. And they always had this underlying thing about like, gee, they put this limit on government and government can't give us all of the things. You know, yeah, yeah. Well, and that's that's the thing we, we try to educate people on is, I mean, most of the people who are attracted to this uh, either are already, you know, quote, in the camp of saying they want to defend and champion a free market and capitalism and small, you know, quote, small government. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are people more and more of our listeners are are just kind of interested in learning about it. And, and they don't have really uh, necessarily a background in you know, constitutional studies and, and how the founding happened and the whole idea of limited government, what the purpose of government is in the first place. So we try to we try to do a little education on our own part. Do you have a perspective on that? I mean, just that whole idea of, like you're saying, NPR has a bent and like, oh, well, these guys are putting a cap on spending. That means our government can't provide all the things that we want. You know, do, do you have a perspective on how that that culturally, uh, how how people have gotten to that point? <laughs> well, it's, I, it's the, I mean, it's the education system and it's the water we swim in. I mean, as you, you know, I say that because you can't ask the fish about a water, yeah. about water, because they're like, well, what is water? Well, you're completely surrounded by it. Yeah. And I just, I don't want to go too far down this, but I had a neighbor who I like her personally very much, but she never met a government program that she didn't like. And 
you know, I got to talking to her and I said, I told her, I always sort of round off and say, well, I'm a, a small L libertarian, right? That Because that usually people understand, oh, he wants a small government. That's And she said, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? You know, the government program this here and there. And I said to her, at the time, I had just finished reading Ben Franklin's autobiography. And in there, there was some problem on the Philadelphia streets. And rather than go to the legislature, the city hall, and say, we need a new street sweeping program, he went around to all the people and said, hey, why don't we chip in a dollar a week or whatever and pay this kid to clean up the streets? And like that just, to her, that was a foreign concept. And I ended up lending her my copy of the Ben Franklin's autobiography and kind of dog-eared the section she should read. Of course, I haven't seen the copy back, but... (laughs) <laughs> well, that may be a good sign, right? I wonder I wonder if it had any impact on her. But th- th- that's the kind of thing I was asking about. I mean, people sometimes don't even think about that. I mean, and, and that's like you said, it's a problem with our education system. They don't necessarily spend time on the founding and, and you know, the, the whole idea of how this unique experiment, the American experiment uh, in freedom and individual rights came about. And that's partly why why we exist, to try to help people understand that better and make the connection between that freedom, that respect and protection of individual rights is really intimate with re- with the idea of trade, free trade and economic policy and ultimately people's human flourishing, their their ability to have a great life, their ability to enjoy their life and that's what's actually uh, the causal connection between having a great life and a great society where people have that kind of freedom because you have the innovation, you have productivity, you have people being able to keep what they burn all those kinds of things. So let's go back to the tax thing. You're giving us kind of a lesson in, uh, yeah. in uh, you know, how, not a lesson, but but more of a history of Gallagher, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, you know, yeah, a little so, bit of personal background on uh, Doug Bruce and the whole phenomenon of trying to de-bruce things. What does that mm-hmm. term in your mind mean, de-brucing? De- well, de-bruce, I, I actually just learned this a few weeks ago. I saw a presentation by the Eagle County Assessor, and de-brucing means anytime they've lifted any bit of the Tabor restriction on a taxing entity. I thought it meant it lifted all restrictions, but uh, apparently, and he was talking about how in his county, different taxing authorities had debruced in different ways. In some cases, they said, we get to do whatever we want with our mill levy. In some cases, they said, well, we're voting to be able to increase our levy at this rate whenever we need it. And um, and we don't want to have to ask you to do it. Um, so every one of them is affected a little bit differently when the values go crazy they're, because they're also limited by whatever the voters happen to have voted in at that particular moment. So let's back up even more. I mean, sure. uh, for for people who are just ignorant with regard to the language, and, and I might be mm-hmm. in that camp, uh, what, what do they mean by a mill levy? What does that even mean? Oh, so the when you calculate your property taxes, there's basically three moving components. One is the value that the assessor has placed on your property. And that's where I play. That's where I go to the assessor and ask them to, to do that. Um, that's the, the majority of what I do is talk to assessors about what is the proper value for a property given the scheme that we have for for values. This year, we happen to be tagged at the kind of the high point of June 30 of last year, right? So that's bad. Usually, our value has gone up by the time we get our assessment, but this time it's the other way around. The second thing is the assessment ratio, which as we get to talking about uh, HH later, the... Um, 
H8 starts to play around with the assessment ratios. And I mentioned that where commercial was set at 29 and, and residential was floating and it floated down from 21 down to 7%. Now, what's that as a percentage of what? As a percentage of the market value they placed on your property. Okay. So if you're taxed, if you have 29%, you have a $100,000 home, you pay taxes on 29,000 of it. And then that is applied to the tax rate, which is the mill levy. Well, mill uh, is like milliliter, millimeter. It's a tax per thousand dollars of assessed value. So mm -hmm. instead of a percent, you're, it's a per mill, if you want to think about it that way. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So then what's the third component so, then? Well, the third component is the mill levy. The mill right? levy so itself. It, okay, okay. Yeah. So we have the, the value the assessment ratio and the mill levy. And if you want to think about the overall tax rate, you really have to take the assessment ratio times the mill levy, and that'll give you a percent of your market value that you have to pay. Now, one now, of these- that, that seems kind of confusing to people. I mean, oh, obviously yeah. <laughs> you work with it every day, but is there a logic to that? Why they have it that way? Well, they do it in different ways all over the country. Um, in some cases, they just say you're taxed at market value. Some cases they have an assessment ratio. In some cases they'll have something called an equalization factor. And in my mind, what the assessment ratio allows lawmakers to do is to kind of fiddle with who might get exempted or might get special treatment. In the case of Gallagher, we gave huge special treatment to residential properties. And I know at the, at the time there was a huge lobby about is an apartment building a commercial property because mostly they're investments or are they residential? And the apartment association, as I understand it, I wasn't, you know, I was a kid at the time. The apartment association said, no, clearly we're residential and we should be treated that way. But in HH, they created many more categories of assessment ratios. So one of the special people uh, who get, if you have a, Oh, what's the term? So if you're doing anything with electrical vehicles or uh, renewable energy manufacturing, you actually get a special class and you get a lower assessment ratio. So the purpose of it, I think, is just to be able to say, well, let's carve out this class of people or this class of owner and give them a special rate. Or well, a higher more rate. social engineering. I mean, that's I think clearly so. what they do what they do with the tax code across the board, right? They're trying to say, okay, we want right. this outcome. So we're going to give incentives or disincentives or penalties or, you know, all kinds of, uh, you know, stick and carrot type of thing to say, mm -hmm. here's, here's the outcome we're looking for. And this is how to get there. And they don't, you know, as you and I both know, that oftentimes don't realize the unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. You mentioned something a little while ago that I don't think most people, especially in today's market, because most people seen a pre most homeowners have seen, you know, in this area, have seen and across the country, have seen significant appreciation on their their market values. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that you know the there's been more of a burden on residential. And I think you said maybe you didn't even say it today. I've heard you say before that in Colorado, I mean, the residential property tax is really pretty competitive across the country, like as in low <laughs> low rates, right? Yeah, it, in I think it was the Lincoln Institute or Lincoln something, they did a tax study and Colorado's residential property tax rate on average across the whole state. So your mileage may vary depending on where you are, if you're in a special district or whatever. Um, we are in the lowest two or three 
of states that have a property tax. There are a few states that don't have a property tax at all, so they get a pass. They just tax you in other ways, right? Right, right. I mean, and that's but, always fascinating too. I mean, I mean, I, I did want to. I don't know whether you want to go down this rabbit hole, but just the whole idea of where states decide. Okay, we're not going to have an income tax, but guess what? We'll get you over here. Or how does? I mean, if you if you yeah. have any kind of concept of how those things develop, you may or may not. But I mean, you know, from from our perspective, from uh, a from a, a person who understands, and you know, you were talking about small government before. Mm-hmm. But I think even more precisely, we want proper government, okay, government doing what it's supposed to do and not all these other things that it's you know, not really supposed to be doing. And I think that's the debate that should be happening in our culture right now. And we're getting there ever, ever so slowly, I think. <laughs> but I think we're going to get there. Yeah. Um, but that, that whole idea of how – even the, the, the idea of saying, okay, in this county you have multiple different taxing authorities, right? you got the, all these different <laughs> sources of saying, well, now we get a cut of – of your either your income or you know your property or whatever it is um how did that that whole monstrosity develop i you know i don't know i i know that it's it's been around a long time uh there was i've occasionally attended the assessors not as an attendee but i've gone to the assessors conference and there's a a guy who has studied all of this history about property taxes all the way back to the founding. So it's not, it it was around at that time. It's just developed in different ways. And depending on the culture of each state and how they brought it in, I know a lot of our laws kind of came from Chicago or from Illinois. They just kind of said, copy and paste and scratch at Illinois and put Colorado and then grow from there. So we had our own kind of individual idea of how we should govern but we had a base that was from Illinois for better or for worse. And so some of that may have been baked in there. Some of it is we put things into the constitution, you know, like Bob Schaefer always mentions, it is in Colorado, a constitutional thing that we have to educate children. Right. That's right. That's right. It's a right. It's a constitutional right. Mm -hmm. A Colorado um, constitutional right. Exactly. It's in the Colorado constitution. So back to the 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 issue of Tabor. I mean, the the, the intention behind it was to to slow mm-hmm. the growth of government relative to the private economy, right? Wasn't yeah. that the intention? Yeah, I mean, that, the intention was to say it was only going to grow at this particular rate, and if you wanted more, you had to ask for it. So it meant that the government wasn't going to expand beyond where it was. Um, depending on your thought about inflation, whether it matches what is actually going or whether it's understated or overstated. But it, it was a way of saying, this is where it's going to be. And um, a, and this is how it's going to grow. And, and that whole idea of asking for it is, mm-hmm. you know, taxation with representation, right? You just mm-hmm. can't have the, you can't have the le- state legislature or these other taxing authorities throughout the counties and municipalities just just deciding to have it you know, continue to have higher taxes on your property. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea was to say, well, okay, it can grow at this rate, but if it's going to, if you want it to grow higher than that, you got to ask the voters, you got to ask the people yeah. you're taxing. Right. And it specified specific language. I think I learned this from the podcast that you had to state upfront by raising X number of billion dollars in taxes or whatever it was, shall the legislature do this or shall the, the laws be changed to this? So the law always has to state how much additional taxes are going to be in there. 
And so there's been all these bills that they've passed where they'll say, without raising any additional revenue, but they kind of did some gerrymandering to figure out how to make it look like it wasn't going to raise revenue when maybe it kind of actually was. Well, and that's going back to what you said before, too, about what they call things, right? Whether it's a tax or it's a fee. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the, if it's a fee, it doesn't necessarily fall under that category of having that having that cap or that restriction on it. And that's just one way they've, they being the government have been able to sort of modify or water down the effect that the the Tabor Amendment was supposed to have mm-hmm. in terms of restricting the growth, the size and growth of government. So, But here we are now. The, the number that I've heard is 70% of the taxing authorities that have a mill levy have um, have debruced in some way, shape, or form. So that means, so, you know, we were at 100% in 1992, 93, and now we're at 30% that have some kind of restriction. Wow. That's amazing, huh? Mm. How does that happen? I mean, uh, you can understand it, I guess, if you're in the government, either, you know, a legislator or a politician who's wanting to spend more money and you're, you know, you run programs within the government. But why, how do you think that happened where the voters, the actual people who had to be asked at some point, well, Mike, you know, should we it's, go it's for the children, <laughs> right? So the, the, the first thing that, that got debruced, I, and I don't know this, I don't have an exact history of this, but so many of the biggest part of our property taxes is for the schools. And so you'll have Jefferson County School District and Cherry Creek School District and Douglas County. And they'll say, you know, basically to the voters, hey, we'd like to debruce so that there's not this restriction on us to be able to fund our schools. And then the big campaign is, oh, we don't have enough money for the schools and we're underfunded and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the voters are pretty readily uh, or pretty willing to say, yeah. I, I want that emotional schools. appeal, that emotional mm-hmm. appeal about, you know, for the children. But all, but are there are you think that most people in Colorado or around the country are that satisfied with the schools? Because you know, every time you read something factual mm-hmm. about achievement, uh, grades, emotional well-being, whatever it might be, any way you compare you know, the outcome and you say, what are the facts about how our schools are doing, how our public schools, how our property tax finance public schools are doing? You know, the, I think the answer crappy. is we didn't spend enough money on them. I mean, I think that's that's the answer on the other side. Is right. That, so no matter what, know, it's crappy, but it's not because we didn't spend enough money. And I think it was Brad Thompson who said this, and because he's he has a big advocacy for just abolishing all schools, just start today and abolish all public schools. And yeah, for for those yeah. of our listeners who don't know who Brad Thompson is, they should check him out. Yeah. Google Brad Thompson at the Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism. Both Brad and Eric, Eric Daniels there are fantastic people. You could read about their views. I would I would highly recommend, I, you know, obviously it sounds like a radical position and I, I agree with that. I mean, it, it's radical in one sense to say abolish the public school system, but it's almost like radical to say not given the outcomes we're getting. But I mean, maybe that's, that's what your point is. You know, well, either... You either admit that they're doing so horribly or you say they're way underfunded. And that's been the tactic that you're mentioning. Well, and what Brad has said is in his experience in talking to people is that abstractly, if you show the numbers that our school system is not doing that well on average across the country, that in the same breath, if you start to say, okay, so we should start doing something different in your school district. Oh, well, my school district is fine. You know, my neighborhood school is fine. This school is, you know, my, my school district is great. And 
and that even why they recognize there's a problem as a whole, they don't see a problem with their neighborhood school or their uh, their school or their teacher, right? Their kids' teacher. Yeah. They love that that teacher. So right. Maybe we need to change a lot about the school system, but not my, and, and you just multiply that over time. And you got mm -hmm. all these people who are saying we got horrible schools, but mine's fine and they need to get more money. And uh, that's, mm -hmm. that's, but we're here not necessarily, I mean, <laughs> I, I've, I've spent plenty of time and will in the future. And I hope to have Brad on. We've had mm -hmm. Eric on before, um, but have more people on who can articulate, uh, you know, why there needs to be that kind of change in the school systems to get better outcomes for all of us. You know, anyone who cares about education and realizes that a free people needs an educated populace, it should take those those ideas seriously. But we're here today to talk more about the funding mechanism and just the, mm -hmm. you know, ultimately this this proposition HH. And I'm, I I think I keep derailing you on that. Yeah, no, it's 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 fine. They're, we're having a great conversation. So, so why, why do we have HH? Why, why now? And it goes back to about 2000 and in 2000, they said that we voted on something to get rid of Gallagher. So Gallagher was enshrined in the, the Constitution. It was an amendment that we all passed by referendum or by referral. And I think it was a Denver legislature who kind of put it forward, a Democrat even. And they said, well, we need to get rid of it because part of this shifting unintended consequence is the urban, the more urban counties had plenty of money because they had plenty of commercial properties to tax. But if you get out to some of the more rural areas, you know, Kit Carson or, you know, Morgan County, you know, some of these smaller counties, they have agricultural, which has a limit on how much it's, ta it's taxed, and residential, and maybe a handful of corner stores throughout the county. And so they didn't have a tax base that some of the others did. So the the pitch at the time, I remember they got a, a fireman out, out there and said, oh, we can't fund my fire department because we don't have enough property taxes and it's all Gallagher's fault. So repeal Gallagher. And what they did was they repealed it, but they didn't replace it, right? The whole repeal and replace thing. And so that basically left it up to the legislature to say, well, we can do whatever we want with these assessment ratios. And so they've kind of put some band-aids on it, knowing that this was going to be a problem going forward, but they never, they didn't really address it. And if you, if you want all of the gory details, you can go to the Independence Institute and see um, uh, Representative Frizzell, who was a former assessor, talk about the proposal she put forward and how it was killed in committee and all of those fun things. But essentially, we knew we were going to have a huge property tax problem, particularly for residential and residential votes, right? Not those commercial property owners. They're outnumbered by the residential guys. So we need to do something. So they passed, uh, I think it's Senate Bill or House Bill 303, which turned into Proposition HH. Okay. And it's basically their kind of attempt to fix the void that repealing Gallagher left. So, I mean, notwithstanding maybe, you know, one's view on taxes, you know, the moral issue of taxes in the first place, um, you sound like you recognize that because, you know, that it's one of those things where you do have these unintended consequences and this always happens, right? You say, mm -hmm. here's what we want to squeeze the bloom over here. And we don't realize, well, that's going to have an impact over somewhere else and we're going to pay for it long term. But it sounds like you recognize that that, that did cause a problem. There, there, there has been this ongoing growing problem in terms of the disparity between residential and commercial tax rates 
was there was the bill that she uh, proposed rational in your mind, or do you have a view on how it was, that would get fixed? It was a giant pause button. So essentially, she was going to say, okay, all of the values, instead of getting revalued this year, because in Colorado, we have a revaluation of your market value every other year, according to kind of a, a set of rules. And she knew everything was going to go through the roof. So her proposal was everything gets a pass this year and you get the same value for another two years. And that would give the legislature time to come up with something reasonable for the foreseeable future beyond that. So it would have been a real problem for me because that's what I do is fight property taxes. And if they kept the values all the same, I wouldn't have had anything to fight with <laughs> or to fight about. Yeah, you're kind of in an interesting position there. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, uh, advocating for one thing, but realizing mm -hmm. that could that could uh, uh, change your... I mean, and, and that's how we all are, right? Mm -hmm. Whether I'm in financial services or whatever it is, you just have to deal with the the changing lay of the land and the changing economy. But, but, you know, hopefully that's driven more by innovation, people's supply, real, you know, mutual voluntary trade and supply and demand versus this kind of government mm -hmm. uh, monkeying with things. I, I wanted to ask you about um, that, that whole issue of, of how these things come up. I mean, we, we're, you know, it's on, it's on the ballot here in November. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people realize, don't even think, you know, wait, I don't vote for president this year, so I'm not going to even have, you know, I don't worry, need to worry about voting. Um, we have elections all the time and people need to be engaged and understand. And so here in November, everyone in the state of Colorado will vote on this HH and maybe some other things with, within their own local municipalities. But yeah. um, but it's there and it's there not because the citizens of the state asked for it to be there. This is referred by the legislature. They came up with this plan with maybe the governor polis mm -hmm. and the the state legislature to say here's here's what we're going to try to do now that that's always interesting to me because the state in colorado the state of colorado we have this initiative process i mean the tabor itself was not referred by the state legislature right it was an, it was a citizen initiative correct right so my, my understanding is that those types of changes can come from two directions and maybe a third that i don't know about but you can either have enough signatures on a petition that then drives a vote to a vote of the people. So, you know, you're walking outside of Walmart, Target, King Supers, and there's some guy who says, hey, do you want to lower your property taxes? And you kind of sign it to get out of your way, you know, or, or whatever it is. And those people hate me because I'm always like, now tell me exactly what this bill does and give me the, you know, and by the time they're done with me, there's like, 50 people who have gone by who they could have gotten a signature from, and I end up saying no to them. <laughs> but That's what we call engaged citizenship, right? Right, right. So, so that's one way is you can do that. And as I was filing some of my property tax appeals this year, I was walking into Arapahoe County and someone was already garnering petitions to limit property taxes at, you know, four or five or something percent. So it's like, Hey, if HH doesn't pass, we'd like the option of putting this before the citizens, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And I got yeah, into a big a, argument about that guy too, but you know. Well, and it's fascinating because I just even that issue itself, I I sometimes feel like Colorado has gone too far in terms of the whole democratic movement to say, yeah, the citizens get to decide about all these different initiatives because we have more to vote on in Colorado than than many other states because of mm -hmm. that, right? We we get this process of of citizen initiative, 
to you know gather enough signatures and before you know it you got some some either isn't, really good idea or some harebrained idea on the ballot right isn't that what happened in california with their proposition six and their property tax measure was that it was a citizen's initiative yeah yeah, yeah. and and again i mean in one sense thank god because you know our legislature doesn't understand its role in my view you know that role of of protecting, recognizing, protecting individual and property rights. That that's the primary role they should have. And they're the primary violator of property rights um, and individual rights across the state and across the country. So they they don't understand their role. So it's good that the citizens have this kind of way of saying, well, we're, we need to have a process, this initiative process for redress in Colorado. So it's been good mm-hmm. from that perspective. But, um, but then the second way is the legislature can refer things for us to vote on. Right. And I exactly. think it's it to change the constitution or in the case of HH, if we are going to if it affects Tabor in effect. Yeah. yeah and, exactly. Well, I guess Tabor's part of the Constitution. So that's the That's right. So it does. So um I don't know if you saw the I mean there was there's been a lot of uh, publicity about it both here in Colorado and even even national media. I mean I saw the Wall Street <laughs> Journal characterize it as Colorado's backdoor tax increase. I don't know if you would characterize it the same way, um, but give us some some thoughts on what it does. You know, if you voted yes on it, what it would mean if it if it if it won, or if you voted against it, why you should vote against it. Mm-hmm. Tell us more about that from your perspective. So, what it does, and it's an eighty-page bill, so it's an enormous bill, and I haven't digested nearly all of it. It creates several different classes of properties. So remember that assessment ratio that allows them to kind of play with that. And one of them, well, there's two. One is renewable energy production. They get a special lower assessment ratio. And then the other one is renewable energy and agricultural properties. So I guess if you have an ag property and you put out a whole bunch of um, solar panels, you might get a special assessment ratio. So is that like a point um, system? I mean, it's like the uh, intersectionality points. You know, you, you've got because you're agriculture and you're, you know, you're electric or you're green, then you're going to get a, even a better or lower tax rate. Is that how it's working? Yeah, it looks like it. I mean, it's uh, they're lowering them from right now. In my, in my mind, the base rate is 29 percent of what all commercial was. And now it, it would go down to twenty one point nine percent. They have a special. uh section for hotels and motels and so basically lodging properties and then that that also creates another conflict where we have hotels and motels and they're being taxed at this commercial rate but then you have these airbnbs which have been taxed at that much lower residential rate so they're starting to kind of carve that out by saying well we're going to create a special class being your primary residence which will give Maybe we'll exempt some of your property taxes on your primary residence, but if it's a secondary residence, you're going to get taxed at a higher rate. And so there's they're they're kind of playing with that over the course of the next ten years. Uh, is it like like we said, p- picking winners and losers? I mean, the social engineering thing, deciding what they want to incent or not, I guess, or who they, or maybe maybe it's more like who they're. You know, pressure group politics, uh, where that where they're getting the most pressure as a legislator and a person who wants to stay in stay in office or something. Well, it does kind of scream of that, doesn't it? Right? We've we said, well, the lodging people they're upset, so we're going to give them a little bit lower of a rate than they were paying, and even lower than they would if they were just kind of standard commercial. Mm-hmm. And 
um, you know, the Airbnb folks, we're going to try and tax them more because they're not paying what they should have been paying. But in general, what you've talked about so far is, okay, it's, it's reducing taxes. And, you know, you and I, small government people would say, yeah, let's, let's reduce taxes. I mean, okay, maybe it's, maybe it's picking certain people to favor, but generally that sounds good from a lower, lower taxing rates. Yeah. So they're lowering the assessment ratio, which lowers the tax rate. They're exempting the first part of your property. So in some cases, I think it's like in your primary residence, I have a little cheat sheet here. It looks like you get the first $50,000 of actual value as tax-free, but then anything above that you have to pay taxes on. And so they're playing with the value portion. And then the res the tax, the mill levy portion, I think they're capping that at, and we were talking about this just beforehand, that they're capping that in inflation, but they're letting the taxing authority to decide if they want to opt out by being able to vote themselves out of that limitation. And I, I'm not sure that, like I said, it's an 80 page bill. And so. And you use the term participatory taxation, which I mean, mm -hmm. in one sense, that sounds good, right? You know, you, you, if you're going to be taxed, you should you know, rep, have representation, yeah. but you're talking about the, the authority themselves being able to just say, okay, we're, we're not going to pay attention to that cap? Well, in the, the presentation that I saw, it said that the revenue growth for these municipalities would be tagged to inflation unless the governing body itself votes to override the cap. So we're saying they're going to have to voluntarily hold themselves to the cap or they themselves can vote out of it. They, it doesn't say the people have to vote them out. It says they themselves do. Yeah. And I, I want to go back to, to one sort of the other side of the coin with the the property tax reduction is that they are reducing property taxes, but then they're saying, well, we as the state can't really force you to take less. We have to backfill that in some way. And they're going to backfill that with any Tabor overages that they have. So that's that's how the Wall Street Journal comes to, you know, look, <laughs> this is a game you're playing. What it means is you don't have to do the refunds. You, you don't have to really, it's really like the big yeah. deepers, so to speak, right? It's, it's, basically taking that and saying we're going to we're going to reduce your taxes a little bit but that means we can we've got the ability to backfill and do backdoor taxation across the board or keep more of the revenue that we we've raised from other otherwise tax uh, taxation right mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean that that's the the ultimate idea is that they're lowering statutorily how the property tax system functions and lowering the amount that they'll collect but saying we'll make it up in Tabor revenue from the state. Yeah. And yeah. by doing that, it seems like it's in effect kind of a Tabor repeal. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, so, they, what they haven't been able to do for the last several decades, because most yeah. most of the people at the state yeah. house in Colorado have done everything they can to weaken, like you said, you know, 70% of the taxing authorities around the, the, the state have actually already uh, deep roost in some way or another, but they haven't been able to do that with the people. And now they're trying to get this done uh, to finally really, you know, maybe topple Tabor once and for all, at least effectively by uh, this Proposition HH. I mean, it sounds like bad news. I, I'm, I'm assuming you're recommending, uh, and I don't want to, I don't want to assume this, but I'm, I was thinking you probably would say, you know, a person should vote no on this. Ultimately, yes. I, ultimately, I'm saying you should vote no. I, I think I answered that in yeah. a, a weird way. I do think that this is not a good bill for 
or a good solution to the problem that we've created by repealing Gallagher. We've been kind of creating this problem over 40 years by pushing more and more of the taxes onto commercial. And then with residential, nobody ever felt the kind of the punch of what they had done when they voted for higher property taxes because Gallagher was designed to lower your residential property taxes. And you're like, well, I voted for more taxes, but I didn't see I was paying it because King Supers was paying it and the office building downtown was paying it. And Jason, do you think this is just another way that people don't get that whole concept of unintended consequences and, and really kind of killing the goose that lays the golden egg? I mean, you know, people vilify businesses and think, oh, okay, they're corporate. They're, they don't have a human face to them. So let's go ahead and tax them. You know, they're the ones who can pay for more of this stuff. Except that when you go to King Supers to buy your groceries, King Supers is calculating how much they're charging you for the steak and the grapes and all the other things that we buy based on their costs. And one of those costs is your property taxes. And so we see it, but we don't see it in that direct way. It's like Bastiat's the seen versus the unseen. Like we don't see that we voted ourselves these higher taxes. I had mentioned earlier that we have pretty low residential property taxes. And in a sense, that's part of the reason why our, our property values are high because we can pay, our monthly fees are a lot lower than they would be if they're in a higher tax state. But because we've been pushing this onto commercial for so long and not really seeing those consequences. No, that's exactly right. You, you, you're saying yeah. that the, you know people people are voting for certain things and they're allowing their state legislature to do this. And that creates, like I said, you know, you're squeezing one part of the bubble or the balloon or whatever. So our commercial property taxes by that same study are 17th. Instead of being 48th, we're 17th. And there are I've had people come and ask me to do property tax estimates for, hey, if I buy this property in Broomfield, what is it going to be? What are the taxes going to be? What would you project it? And when they look at it, they say, I don't like those odds. I'm not going to come in to Colorado with the way your property taxes are so harsh on commercial. I'm going to go to Illinois or you know somewhere else where they have a better system for it. Yeah. Well, I thought I thought it would be really good to have you on for a conversation. I've mm-hmm. I've enjoyed it and I've learned a number of different things as far as how to think about this because you know you're in the thick of it. You I think you have a clearly a, a good understanding of how market mm-hmm. markets work, how uh, how morality works in terms of taxation itself in the first place. But you're mm-hmm. in the thick of it from a from seeing the actual consequences of these different initiatives and how they how they do you know have ripple effects, how they have secondary tertiary effects on not only the property values, but the taxes and, and the, the, the actual tax base in terms of what happens in terms of, you know, uh, companies that either come to or leave Colorado. So I thought that was good. You have any, any final, you know, sort of overarching thoughts on this issue of HH? So I, I don't watch TikTok at all, but every once in a while you get those short videos on Instagram or YouTube. There's this guy named Johnny Swole, who is a big buff guy. He talks about workout culture and he always points out somebody doing something really stupid at the gym. And he tells them, you know, you should be, you know, you should share your weights or you should do this or you should do that. And at the end of every one of his videos, he said, you should do better. And I feel like that's what we need to do is say to the legislature, this proposition HH is not 
a solution. It's you're you're taking from here to pay there. It's not a real fix to the problem. Do better. And that's yeah. that's I think the vote that we have is to tell the legislature to do better. I think that's a good analogy. I think that's a good a good way to put it in perspective because you're recognizing that there is there you know because of previous legislation <laughs> and previous developments there is kind of a weird thing that's going on and it needs to be addressed, but they are not addressing it. And they're, they're making it worse in one sense, yeah. uh, as the wall street journal pointed out and many others, the independence Institute, like you said, point out they're they're basically trying to, to get rid of a good thing that's really helped keep Colorado much more physically, fiscally sound than other States. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's helped us actually continue to have a growing economy for the last several decades where as you know, other, other States around the country are going broke. And um, what what I've watched, and our friend Kyle Clark on Nine News, <laughs> um, <laughs> I know that every I think everyone was surprised by him by saying, "Don't tell us that this is a tax cut when you're taking from here in order to pay for it." You know, you're taking from one pocket to pay the other. But he also has said, you know, this is a little like playing chicken with uh, the governor and the legislature. He thinks that if this is turned down, that there will be a special session of the legislature to do some kind of temporary relief like uh, Representative Frizzell had already proposed. Mm-hmm. And so it's because I, I don't think they want unhappy con- constituents. That's right. That's the one thing that yeah. they, they try to try to answer to. Um, it, you know, we, we've talked on this forum before a lot about democracy and, you know, people voting for things. And it's, clearly we don't have a, a government either at the state or federal level who really understands its proper role. That's part of what we're trying to educate people about. But in the meantime, the citizenry, the people need to to be able to be more accountable and more engaged to understand what's going on. And this is a way to say, like you said, vote no and say, do better. Um, you got to come up with a better solution to this problem. So I really appreciate it. Are there other things you wanted to, to talk about while, while I have you on? I mean, I, I've been meaning to have you on for a while. Oh, um, There's a ton, ton of stuff that you, uh, you've you educated me on over the years. Anything else you want to leave our audience, our Defenders of Capitalism audience with? I think for me, the most important thing to pay attention to across the board is freedom of speech. Because if we lose the ability to speak our minds and say what we think is important, we're lost, we're sunk. And I think that means in practicality, defending other people's right to speak when you absolutely hate what they have to say. I was going to ask you, because that's and, the thing is people say, I, yeah, I mean, freedom of speech is great until you got hate speech. And we don't want to hate speech, Jason. I think we need to defend hate speech in a certain way. You know, we need to defend people saying these things. We need to allow the books that we don't, you know, like the fact that somehow we've there's been a school district who banned Anne Frank's book. Yeah, like, this is crazy. ridiculous. And the more we start clamping down on ideas, the more that's going to have a down a downhill effect that's going to adversely affect us. And we're going to lose any chance at freedom from both one our, side both the our other. freedom and our prosperity are at risk once we start mm-hmm. to say you can regulate what people yeah. think and say. So, so if, that's a good that's a really good point to end on. I, I appreciate you uh, putting that kind of exclamation point on this because that is crucial. And I think that's one of the things that anyone, you know, I don't care if you feel like you're on the blue team or the red team or whatever it is, anywhere you are on the, the political spectrum, you should be fighting for that kind of freedom, the freedom to speak your mind, to think your mind and to let other people do that. You know, there's obviously the distinction between freedom to speak and the freedom to to act on on this uh, on on certain speech. 
but that's that's for another time. I uh, again, I really appreciate Jason. You are yeah. a hero of mine, and people should listen to you more often. Hopefully, you know your uh, your clients listen to you. Your wise counsel in terms of being able to um, help uh, reduce their tax bills, and um, I look forward to having on, having you on on again sometime. Yeah, let me know. Thank you, sir. Thanks this for having another... me. I, I appreciate it. You bet. You bet. Thanks for being here. And uh, this has been another episode of uh, Capital Idea with Michael Williams and Jason Letman. Continue to fight for individual rights, the proper role of government, and having engaged citizens who understand those things, uh, and we'll end up having more freedom and prosperity for everyone. Thanks for listening, everybody.